0: You're listening to the Oldham Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to 30 Days of Stories on the Underground Railroad in Kentucky, produced by the Oldham County History Center. I am your host, Terry Miller. I am a volunteer for the Oldham County History Center and serve as fundraising chair on the Board of Directors. The Underground Railroad refers to the efforts of enslaved African Americans to gain their freedom by escaping bondage. Wherever there were enslaved African Americans there were people eager to escape. The first step on the Underground Railroad began when that freedom seeker stepped away from the place where they were enslaved. A home, a farm, a field, a steamboat. Many freedom seekers began their journey unaided following the North Star, and many completed their self-emancipation without assistance. But each decade, leading up to the Civil War in the United States where slavery was legal, there was an increase in active efforts to assist escape. Kentucky became the best option available for fugitives to escape from Tennessee, Alabama, and other Southern states including Kentucky because of the 664 mile border of the Ohio River, allowing for more potential to reach the free soil of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. Kentucky became central to slave escapes by virtue of its physical and political geography. For that reason, Kentucky and the states along its northern border became central to the Underground Railroad, a battleground where freedom was tested and stories of courage and sacrifice were made. Our guest reader today is Sherry Jackson. Sherry Jackson, Southeast Regional Manager of the National Park Service's National Underground Railroad Network to Freedom Program, has worked 26 years with the National Park Service. 16 of those years have been with the Network to Freedom Program. The Network to Freedom Program is a national program in the National Park Service that tells the stories of freedom seekers from all over the United States. This program has over 600 members, including sites, facilities, and programs. Through this program, Freedom Seekers' histories from their escape site, their journey, their destination site, and their burial site have all been connected. Jackson works with local, state, and federal entities, as well as interested individuals and organizations to provide advice, subject matter expertise, and technical support to preserve and tell the stories of the Underground Railroad. The program demonstrates the significance of the Underground Railroad, not only in the eradication of slavery, but also as a cornerstone of our national civil rights movement. Sherry explains the definition of the Underground Railroad, which is often misunderstood. The Underground Railroad was not a train operating along hidden railroad tracks. The Underground Railroad refers to the efforts of enslaved Africans to gain their freedom through escape and flight, and the assistance of people who opposed slavery and willingly chose to help them escape through the end of the U.S. Civil War. Wherever slavery existed, there were efforts to escape, at first to maroon communities and rugged terrain away from settled areas, and later across state and international borders. Today... Sherry will explain how the National Park Service National Underground Railroad Network to Freedom program works and share a story on the Underground Railroad.
0: Many of the listeners today have heard of the National Park Service and may have visited national parks, but you may ask or wonder, how did the National Park Service get involved in the Underground Railroad before and after the Civil War? families and organizations kept those Underground Railroad stories in their communities through all histories and literature. There was an increasing grassroots effort by communities and descendants across the country to preserve their Underground Railroad heritage. In 1990, Congress authorized the National Park Service conduct a special research study on the Underground railroads and recommend alternatives for commemorating and interpreting that history. After five years of research and further legislation, Congress established the Network to Freedom Act, Public Law 105-203 in 1998. The National Park Service commemorates and preserves this history through the National Underground Railroad Network to Freedom Program. The program extols the historical significance of the Underground Railroad in the eradication of slavery, in the evolution of the National Civil Rights Movement, and through its relevance in fostering the spirit of racial harmony and national reconciliation. Recognizing that all human beings embrace the right to self-determination and freedom from oppression, the historical Underground Railroad sought to address the injustices of slavery and to make freedom a reality in the United States. The program through shared leadership with local, state, and federal entities as well as interested individuals and organizations will promote programs and partnerships to commemorate, preserve sites and other resources associated with, and educate the public about the historical significance of the Underground Railroad. One of the main components of the program is to develop a network of sites, programs, and facilities with verifiable associations to the Underground Railroad. Individuals or organizations can apply to become a member in the network. As of August 2020, there are 651 members in the network, and the state of Kentucky has 11 of those members. These include sites, programs, and facilities. Across 40 states, the District of Columbia, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Once you become a member, you're added to our national database, authorized to use our Network of Freedom logo, and apply for grants when funds are available. After 22 years, we have been able to trace many individuals' journeys throughout the United States. We received many applications that document Stations on the Underground Railroad, properties associated with prominent persons, legal challenges related to escape and flight, properties associated with documented escape, rescues, kidnappings, maroon communities, destination sites, churches associated with congregations active in the Underground Railroad, transportation sites, military sites commemorative sites, archaeological sites, and places of burial. Many of these primary sources used to document these sites and programs are located in archives, libraries, special collections, and research centers. Individuals and organizations utilize this information to develop public programs, curriculum-based educational programs, youth programs, websites, tours, performances, exhibits, and living history programs. Traditionally, when we hear or think about the Underground Railroad, we automatically think about leaving the South and going North. Normally, the South is the place where freedom seekers escape from, but it was also the place where freedom seekers escaped, to. Freedom seekers escaped to the Caribbean, Spanish Florida, and Spanish Texas. Let's go to Spanish Florida. As word went north, British-owned slaves could earn their freedom in exchange for military service and adoption of the Catholic faith. Spanish Florida became a 17th an 18th century refuge for freedom seekers. Battling slave catchers, dangerous swamps, and hunger, freedom seekers and the native Indians helped establish the first legally underground railroad community in present day United States. The first recorded freedom seekers arrived in St. Augustine in 1687. Most people think of the Underground Railroad as being active in the 1800s, but people were escaping enslavement as early as the 17th century. As freedom seekers continued to escape from the Carolinas and to St. Augustine, the Spanish governor sought the counsel of the Spanish crown. In 1693, Charles II issued the first royal edict of runaway slaves giving liberty to all, men as well as women, so that by their example and by my liberty, others will do the same, unquote. The conditions of freedom for men were they had to serve four years in the military, defending St. Augustine, convert to Catholicism, and swear allegiance to the Spanish crown. The British planners claimed that the Spanish policy of harboring escape runaway but ruined the British plantation system, by not only enticing the freedom seekers southward to Florida, but also by sending the former slaves back to the plantations to raid and plunder. As a result, the Carolinians set up patrol systems. And professional slave catchers that hunted the runaways. The freedom seekers were helped by the Yamasee and Seminole Indians who were also fleeing the British. In 1737, Governor Don de Martiano enforced the Royal Edicts of 1693 in 1733, which granted unconditional freedom to slaves escaping from the British plantation. For the Spanish, these runaways were a much-needed source of field laborers, soldiers, and religious converts. Following the Caribbean's president, the Spanish knew that harboring the escapees would also help populate a territory that was increasingly threatened by British intrusion. By 1738, a group of about 100 former slaves and free people of color were living in St. Augustine in the legally based town of Fort Mosaic. The flow of Africans from the British colonies led the governor of Florida, Manuel de Montiano, to create a free black settlement of Fort Mosaic, just north of St. Augustine. It was considered the first town formed by free blacks in the United States and was was led by its own Mandinga commander and militia. He was baptized with the name Francisco Menendez. In 1724, he escaped from the Carolinas, converted to Catholicism, and was granted freedom by the Spanish authorities. Menendez was appointed captain of the black militia in 1726. Many of Fort Mose's residents were skilled workers, blacksmiths, carpenters, cattlemen, boatmen, and farmers. With accompanying women and children, they created a colony of free people that ultimately attracted other freedom seekers. The news of freedom in Spanish Florida Contributed to the first major slave rebellion in British America, the 1739 Sono River Rebellion of South Carolina. Freedom seekers were headed to Fort Mose in Augustine, Florida. They did not reach Fort Mose. 25 colonists and between 35 to 50 Africans were killed. In 1739, a legislative session convened in Charles town to consider primary issues confronting the Carolinians, the desertion of slaves, and, quote, the encouragement lately given by the Spaniards for the desertion of Negroes from this government to the garrison of St. Augustine. unquote. Fort Mose was destroyed by the British forces in 1740, and a second Fort Mose was reestablished in 1762 and lasted until 1763 when again it was abandoned. The site of Fort Mose is a tangible remnant of early attempts by Africans to gain their freedom. Texas. Recently in the news, Texas has been talked about with its relationship with Juneteenth. What's Juneteenth? So the background. During the Civil War, slavery in Texas had continued as usual. There were no large-scale Civil War battles or a significant number of Union troops. Before and during the Civil War, many enslavers moved there and set up new plantations. They viewed Texas as a safe haven for slavery. U.S. General Gordon Dranger and Federal Troops arrived in Galveston, Texas in 1865 On June 19th, this was two months after the Civil War ended, along with slavery. He read General Orders Number 3, quote, The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free, unquote. At that time, there was an estimate of 250,000 enslaved people in Texas. After the hearing of this news, Blacks celebrated and Juneteenth was born. It became a Texas state holiday in 1980. General Granger died on January 10, 1876 and is buried. At the Lexington Cemetery in Kentucky, he'll so always be known as the general that came to Texas and announced freedom to the enslaved in Galveston and helped establish the Juneteenth holiday. The struggle for freedom in Texas had a long history. Seminoles, who were instrumental in the Underground Railroad in Florida, continued in Texas. The saga of the Black Seminoles began in the early 1800s in the swamp lands of Florida, when freedom seekers from Georgia and the Carolinas took shelter with a confederation of culturally diverse Indian tribes known as Seminoles. Although, although they were of different ethnic origins. Both groups shared a desire for freedom and resisted European intrusions into their homeland. Freedom speakers initially formed separate maroon communities near Seminole villages. A mixed society emerged. Blacks were involved with Seminole Indians in raiding and recruiting more runaways to Florida. They joined the Seminole Confederation in 1812, and this is a mutually beneficial. Mutually beneficial military alliance that continued through two wars with the U.S. Army. In the 1830s, they were forcefully moved to the Indian territory of Oklahoma as, re- as a result of President Jackson's Indian removal policy. Fierce resistance by some of the Seminoles and their Maroon allies lasted persecution and enslavement and to the Second Seminole War of 1835-1842. John Horse, known as Gopher John or John Caballo, probably also known as Juan Cavallo in Texas and Mexico, was a black Seminole chief who served as Seminole chief of wildcat interpreters during this period. Seizure of wildcat by the U.S. Army led to the surrender of the band for deportation to Indian Territory in 1841 in Oklahoma. But after seven years of facing hunger, fear of enslavement and oppression by Creek neighbors in Indian Territory, Wildcat decided to leave his band to Texas and Mexico. Mexico was a land of mixed racial groups defying the United States system of slavery. And when a black entered Mexico, it was based on his economic contribution rather than his or her race. By the 1850s, many black Seminoles were already living in Texas. But when they became fearful of attempts to re-enslave them, many fled across the border to Mexico. Persecuted by the US Army and slave companies, these black Seminoles and their families had traveled on the trail of tears from Florida, to Indian territory and finally through Texas and Mexico, where they were finally free in the 1840s. But by this time, the Seminoles had gained a reputation on the border as fierce fighters and Indian trackers. Even before the Seminoles arrived in Texas, it was already a destination for freedom seekers. Lasideas was the first capital of Spanish Texas from seventeen twenty nine to seventeen seventy. It was located in the northeastern frontier of New Spain, just east of Prince Methodist, Louisiana. The site became a mission. The site included a mission and presidio. Freedom speakers chose Las Vegas as a destination for three primary factors. Freedom speakers traveled from, from as far away as New Orleans in search of protection and potential freedom. First, the Spanish prohibited the enslavement of New World populations after the initial exploration, exploration of the area. Second, a transportation corridor between and and La was already established, which facilitated the exchange of food and merchandise between the two posts. And finally, there appears to have been a Spanish policy of returning captured freedom seekers only if they had committed a crime. Otherwise, they were not returned to enslavement. La Fedaye was a destination site for freedom seekers in 18th century Louisiana. The Spanish crown and religious authorities had prohibited the enslavement of people. Although this prohibition was often ignored in many Spanish colonies, economic necessity and labor needs prevailed. This resulted in an enslaved labor force in many of the Spanish colonies. Since cattle ranching was the primary economic pursuit for the Spanish in the area of Las Vegas. And since labor requirements for ranch are much less than for plantations, there were only infrequent mentions of enslaved people in this part of the province of Spanish Texas. Because Lacedaes was not self-sufficient, trading food between the French and Methodist was allowed. It led to an established path between the two colonial territories. Al Camino Real was a long-established transportation corridor between Natchitoches and Lacedaes. The corridor was a route chosen by freedom seekers on their way to Lacedaes. A part of reaching Lacedaes, freedom seekers stood a good chance that they would be allowed to continue on their journey of freedom if they had not committed a crime. Lacedaes was part of an established travel route and a state network exists between Spanish citizens and the French enslaved Africans from Methodists, known today as Al Camino Real. The route formed a series of trails used by Cato Indians for travel between the villages. Spanish colonists took over parts of those existing trails for the transportation of animals and military personnel, civilian, and religious individuals. First citizens from Louisiana also used to go between Natchitoches and Lacedaes as a trade route and to other interior regions of New Spain to conduct business. In 1771, an enslaved woman Maria and her son Alexandre, a pregnant woman, Charlotte and a male Luis, had been gone from New Orleans for 18 months. Along the way, they recruited other freedom seekers, including Gidda, La Rose, who also had a gun, gunpowder, and lead, Raoul Lefleur, and Mouton. When arrested at the cattle grazing land of Louis Duchereau, de the de Saint Denis, former commandant at Natchitoches, when the group was questioned, they said they were headed for the Spanish border of Las Cabea. Mutan was shot and killed by local slaver codes. The fate of the others remained unknown. This group of student students had come from New Orleans in search of Las Vegas, largely because of the fourth location along a well-known road leading into Spanish territory. La officially closed in 1773. The next capital of the Spanish Territory was San Antonio. It closed in 1774, and its settlement on the Trinity River was established in 1774 to 1778. That site was abandoned due to Indian raids, crop failure, and flooding. And in 1779, the capital moved to Nacogdoches, Texas. By the late 1700s, free people of African descent on fifteen percent of the population in Texas. It is quite likely that some of the some of that propo, proportion of that fifteen percent could be attributed to eighteenth century freedom speakers who came from Louisiana to Texas by way of Los Adidas and along the El Camino Real. We may never know the names of the Louisiana freedom speakers who successfully settled in Texas know exactly how they arise. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the Oldham Chamber and Economic Development Office.